It had been two years since Christ called the twelve to leave their occupations, their families, their weekly patterns of life to follow Him on a grand adventure that He variously described as fishing for men or declaring the kingdom of God. Just how long it had been since the 72 others referred to in Luke 10 had been following Jesus, we can't be quite certain. But we may safely assume it had been for some while since Jesus felt comfortable sending them ahead of him as front men to declare that he was coming to the villages and towns. And during the months leading up to this momentous shift in their involvement in the ministry of Christ, they had been observing phenomena of an extraordinary nature, things they, they never would have believed had they not seen them with their own eyes. They had been front and center for the healing of lepers and paraplegics, the lame and the blind. They had witnessed the dramatic deliverance of men and women who had lived all of their lives slave to demons. Some of them had no doubt been present on the day when he fed 5,000 with a few fish and loaves. And still others had looked on in amazement as he commanded the wind and the waves to cease. And then too, there was the unparalleled authority of his teaching. And yet as remarkable as all this had been, what was about to take place would involve them in Christ's mission in a still more radical and a far more personal way. In Luke 9 and again in Luke 10, we find Jesus commissioning his disciples and sending them out to further the heavenly mission that he himself had already begun. No longer would they be astonished observers of his works. From this point on, they would be authorized partners in the mission that they could never have imagined themselves so involved in. It was the summer after I turned nine years of age, and I was with my dad on the milk route, as I would often go with him, to help out, particularly during the summer months. Dad was uh, carrying the milk to a door, as was his pattern, and I watched him go up, and then I noticed he was in conversation with the woman who'd met him at the door. And at some point, he motioned for me to come and join him, and I did. I had a strong suspicion what dad was doing. Whenever he got the opportunity, he would say a word for Jesus. And I thought, well, here's a woman who wanted to talk about spiritual things. And sure enough, they were engaged talking about spiritual things. I heard her say to my dad, but bud, that's not as easy as you think. I could never do that. I don't understand that. And I heard my dad say, oh, it's really not that difficult. Even a child can understand it. And then he turned to me and he said, buddy, tell Mrs so-and-so, how she can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I was like a kid being thrown into the water in the deep end. <laughs> I wasn't at all sure. I heard my father many times before as he had explained the gospel and told how it had impacted his life, but now I was the one. It was my turn. I think it was much like that with Jesus' followers on this particular day. In Luke 9, 1, we read, one day Jesus called together his 12. He gave them power and authority to cast out demons and to heal all diseases. And then he sent them out to tell everyone about the coming kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Chapter 10 of Luke, we read, the Lord now chose 72 other disciples, and he sent them out ahead in pairs. He said, go now and, and, and remember that I am sending you. Can you even imagine what that must have felt like for the 12 for the 72. One day they're watching with complete awe 
as Jesus healed the sick, cast out demons. The next day, it is they who are called upon to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to demonstrate the power of his authority in their lives. Nor did he stop with the 72. In the closing chapter of this Gospel of Luke, we are told that in the days following his resurrection, Christ appeared to his followers who were gathered in Jerusalem, and he extended his commission to each and every one of them. We read, with my authority, take this message of repentance to all the nations. You, you are my witnesses of all these things. And now I send my Holy Spirit, and he will come from heaven, and he'll fill you with power for the fulfillment of this mission. Earl Ellis in his commentary says, these directions that we're about to read in in Luke 10, in just a moment, the directions that he gave the men on that occasion became the directions for the early church for all who were going out to bear witness to Christ. Those who were bearing witness in their own homes, in their own hometowns, and those who were traveling to other countries. But wherever they went, the instructions we're going to look at this morning were the instructions that he gave not just to the 12 and not just to the 72, but to the church. Today, 2,000 years later, the mission that Christ gave first to the 12 and then to the 72, and finally to his entire church, continues to be the mission of the church around the globe. How's that mission faring, by the way? Richard Bauckham, in his book, Jesus, a very short introduction, begins with these words. Two billion, two billion people today identify themselves as Christians. Such followers of Jesus are now more numerous and make up a greater proportion of the world's population than ever before. It is estimated that they are increasing by some 70,000 persons every day. The growth of Christianity is taking place despite its decline in the West. That's us. And all this is taking place in response to the mission that Christ assigned to us, his church, and in anticipation of his soon return to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. All that's been said to this point is, I think, necessary if we are to rightly understand the significance of our text for this morning and its application to each and every one of us. I read then from Luke chapter 10, the opening verses, and then we'll pick up a little further in the book, but beginning, follow along if you will, Luke 10, beginning at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to you are your feet. We wipe off against you. 
Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now skip down to verse 17. The 72 have gone out in their venture now, and here's what we read. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this alone, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In these words taken directly from Luke's gospel, chapter 10, Jesus himself lays out the mission that he's given to us, you and me, for this age. And in the, in the time that remains to me this morning, I want to make nine observations about this mission that he's given us. Now, don't worry, they're not points. Points take longer. <laughs> observations don't take long. So you could get about four points, nine observations, okay? All right, so don't worry. The first observation I would make is this. The gravity of our mission is established and evidenced throughout Christ's commission. Whatever else may be true, of the mission Christ has entrusted to us, it is no small or insignificant matter. Look in verse 2. The harvest, the work to be done, he says, is great. God himself is in charge of it. Verse 4, nothing must be permitted to deter from its completion. Verse 7, those who undertake the mission are worthy of their hire. They never need to apologize for the important work they're doing. Verse 13, men's response to your message will determine their eternal destiny. Verse 16, those who accept us are accepting God himself, and those who reject us are rejecting God. Verse 18, angels and demons, indeed Satan himself, will be affected by the success of our Christ-given mission. As for the gravity of our mission, it can only be referred to as immense, huge, awesome, eternally important. To be sure, every generation will face a dozen or more critical issues worthy of dying for, but none of them will have the same worth or the same gravity as the mission that you and I have been assigned to. The summer after my junior year in college, I took a tutorial course in my major field of studies, communication. It was during that summer that I found myself wrestling with a very basic question. I had been studying approaches to communication for three years, and now I was asking myself the really important question, and that was, what's my message? What, I, what do I have to say? What is it that I want to communicate? And I wrestled. I wrestled in prayer, and I wrestled in thought, and I talked with counselors and with my parents and anyone who would talk with me. What was my subject? What was my message? What was my expertise? This was before I had a sense of a calling for pastoral ministry. And as I waited on the Lord and prayed more and more, the question came to my mind, what is it that I could give the rest of my life to? What is it that I could tell men and women about for the next 50, 60 years, if God permits, and never get bored of, never get bored with it, never get tired of it, never think to myself, isn't there something grander to say? I entertained a dozen or more options, but always I came back to the same one. And now 50 plus years have passed and I can, I can honestly say that I have never, not one day, regretted the conclusion I arrived at that summer. 
Christian, there is no more important, there is no more momentous, no more worthy theme than the good news that sinful men can be reconciled to their God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is the message and the mission which our Lord has entrusted to you and to me. The second observation I would make about the mission Christ has entrusted to us is this. The dependency of those being sent must rest squarely upon our our Lord, the one who has sent us. In verses 1 through 4, Jesus establishes the fact that the success of the mission he's assigned us to depends entirely upon him. In verse 1, he chose us and sent us. Verse 2, the resources to accomplish all that he sent them to do were well beyond their means. The harvest was great. It was too great. So what were they to do? They were to pray to the Lord, the one who was in charge, and to make certain that they never forgot their dependence upon God for the completion of this mission. He tells them, don't take along any extra money or a traveler's bag or even an extra pair of sandals. You say, why not? Why not? So they don't begin to view any success they have on their mission as dependent upon human resources. Now, is this to say that God will never use the resources of this present age to advance the kingdom of God? No. We're encouraged to give generously for its cause of missions around the world. But even as we give and plan and strategize and build, even as we stockpile our resources and plan and strategize, We must never forget that the accomplishment of our mission is entirely in the hands of the Lord of the harvest. Pray then to the Lord of the harvest who is in charge of the mission. And this principle can still be observed in our world today. I spoke earlier of the rapid growth of the church in our age. Sometimes we lose sight of that. 70,000 new converts to Christ each day. But where is that taking place? Where is that taking place? Not in the West, where hundreds of millions of dollars are invested in new and bigger church buildings every year, where multiple staffs and the latest of everything are invested in churches, and our attendance and our devotion and our commitment as a nation continues to decline. Not in the West, but rather in the house churches of China and among the poor in Africa and Latin America and increasingly in Muslim countries. It's not too much to say that if America and Europe do experience another revival, another forward thrust of Christ's mission, it will not be because we find some new evangelistic tool or because we give generous amounts of our money to our churches, but because we pray the Lord of the harvest to speak and minister and give new life to men and women who are lost without Him. My experience as a pastor over the years has been that in our churches at large, we are ready to do everything but pray for the success of Christ's mission. We will give, we will organize, we will send, we will even go, but will we pray? Until we come to an end of ourselves, until we have tried everything else and come away empty-handed, chances are we will not. Luke reminds us, the Lord chose, the Lord sent, the Lord said, remember that I'm sending you. The Lord said, don't stockpile supplies. The Lord said, do pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him, plead with him. A third observation about our mission, 
the danger attending our mission is very real. This is Memorial Day weekend, and we are celebrating those who faced the dangers of other armies, other forces, and lost their lives in so doing. There is danger attending our mission as well. And there are those who around the world have lost their lives in the cause of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in chapter, or in verse 3 and and, uh, the, the fifth part of that, remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Everybody understood that that wolves are the natural enemy of sheep. And Jesus himself had faced many wolves as a result of his mission from the Father. He knew that his followers would face wolves as well. Notice there is no specific enemy mentioned here. We aren't told who those wolves will be. The warning is a general one. It's a reminder that the enemies of God's sent ones would be many and diverse over the centuries. But that there would be wolves was certain, and that Christ's sent ones would be as innocent lambs before them was certain. And Christ, true to his character, has no intention of sending them out without telling them the truth. It's going to be nasty out there. It's going to be dangerous out there. In fact, the Greek makes it clear that Jesus made a special effort to see to it that the dangers of our mission were understood. This is the one point in his discourse where he stops and there's an exclamation. It's that, behold, that we read in Scripture. Listen to me. Don't miss this now. And what is it he's going to tell them? I am sending you out like lambs. I'm sending you out helpless, defenseless among the wolves. And the history of the church's mission over the centuries does very little to soften Christ's warning. Pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and read a chapter or two if you dare. Some of you sitting here this morning know what it is to experience the attack of wolves because of your faith, criticism, abuse, loss of a job, ostracism. You've been mocked at times, some of you perhaps. In other parts of the world, the dangers of taking up his mission include prison, torture, and death. And it may not be long before the wolves in our own culture take up some of these very same tactics. And how should we, Christ-sent ones, respond? It's a good question. All across America, Christ's little lambs, his sent ones, are buying up guns in record numbers. Good church people, Christians, buying up guns. No doubt because we sense that the wolves are coming and we want to be ready. But Christ leaves us without a particular defense strategy. Only a command. Go now, he says. It's going to be tough out there, but I'm commanding you. Go now and remember that I'm sending you. And later in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28 and verse 20, he says, be sure of this. I will be with you always. A fourth observation about our mission is this. The urgency of our mission is seen in our refusal to be distracted even by good things. And do not greet anyone on the road. Those were shocking words for Jesus' day and culture. It was considered poor form, impolite. Even not very nice people would stop along the way and greet one another when you saw them on the way. It was unthinkable to do less. The fact that Jesus says this only makes the counsel of Christ on this matter all the more striking. 
Because you see, it's Jesus' way of saying to us that when we are engaged in the mission of making his good news known, nothing else, certainly not social niceties, must be permitted to delay the fulfillment of his mission. Any activity that consumes our time or even delays the communication of our message of God's salvation must be viewed as an enemy of the purpose of God's mission. I remember being in the waiting room as my dad was coming out of surgery following his second open heart bypass surgery at age 81. And the doctor called me in and said, your dad somehow got something into his hand. He's in the waiting room. We don't know. We don't permit patients to take anything into the surgery, into surgery, but he's got something in his hand. He won't let go of it. Could you help us? So I walked in, said, hi, dad. He was just coming out of it. I said, dad, they tell me you got something in your hand that they'd like you to release. They'd like me to take it. He nodded. I took it. It was an address and a phone number. What in the world? Dad had gone into surgery with a not at all certain conclusion that he would come out alive. But there he was, holding something in his hand. Later, he would tell me what it was. Oh, he said, as they were prepping me to go under, I was talking with one of the nurses, and we were talking about things of God. She said she didn't believe in things of Christ. I said to her, if I make it through this surgery, I'd love to talk to you about that. She slipped her address and phone number into his hand. He went into surgery dealing with important matters, urgent matters, matters of eternal life. A fifth observation about our mission, the integrity of our mission requires that we not seek personal advancement or special considerations from those who, re who, who uh, receive us. In verses 5 through 7 of our text, Jesus tells the 72 how they are to treat the folks who offer hospitality to them. He says, bless them. And if they don't treat you well, don't, your blessing will come back on you. They're not going to keep it. But if someone opens their home to you, stay there and, and be thankful for it and don't ask for more. I remember being on, on choir tour from our college back in Ohio, and uh, we would go to different towns and small churches, and we would sing, and then folks in the church would keep us overnight. Maybe you've done that time or sometime or else when uh, somebody's come to sing here, some choir, and we go to different homes, and then we get together the next morning. Guess what we talk about over breakfast? What was your home like? How did they treat you? What was, you know, we had a, we had a really neat place. We had, we had, it was really nice. They had good snacks for us and a great bed and a sauna, and it was really neat. I, oh, man. So I didn't get anything like that. You know, three of us slept in the same bed. It was a tiny little room. It was dark, and the kids were screaming all night. And then somebody would say, I'll give you five bucks if we can change homes. <laughs> Jesus says, don't do that. You're not in this for personal comfort. You're not in this to see how well it can go for you. Demanding pay and personal benefits well beyond the means of one's congregation is not appropriate, not cool in Jesus' eyes. Leaving one ministry to take up another where the pay is better is not cool in Jesus' eyes. Playing down the idea of God's calling on our lives is not cool. We can only wonder how often the world rejects our message, Christian. We can only wonder how often the world rejects our message, not because our Savior is unattractive, but because our lives fail the test of integrity and honesty 
and concern for others. We all have family, friends, loved ones that tell the story of, I'm not going back to church. I know those people. I know what they're like. There was some pastor. There was some BFF. There was some neighbor. There was some teacher. There was somebody in their life who let them down, who didn't have integrity along with their witness. Those who think they can separate their message from their lifestyle make a serious miscalculation. A sixth observation about our mission the message of our, of our mission is the nearness of God's kingdom as seen in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 9, say the kingdom of heaven is near you now. Verse 11, don't forget, the kingdom of God is near. Of course, the 12 and the 72 had a distinct advantage. They could just point and say, well, there He is. He's right there. He is near. Look, He's going to be here tomorrow. He's in that village over there. and By tomorrow, He'll be here. He's near. And he is a representative of Father God and the kingdom of God on earth. But although we can't point men to the physical Jesus today, we can point him to his word, the scriptures. We can point them to numerous powerful evidences in creation that he exists here. Because he is the sovereign God and the king of the world, it's always true. It is always true that our God is near in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 2.20, from the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God made, and they can see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse at all for not knowing him or not thinking that he's near. As for Jesus, the Scriptures bear witness that he is indeed the Son of God. And one with the Father. So even today, 2,000 years since his days on earth, our message is that the Jesus whose life is recorded in the Gospels is near and is coming soon to judge the quick and the dead. Seventh observation about our mission. The consequences of our mission is either life or death. In verses 12 through 16, Jesus reminds the 72 that a great day of judgment is coming and that on that day men will be judged according to how they responded to our message. In verse 16, he goes so far as to say that those who accept our message concerning the Christ will actually be accepting God himself and those who deny or refuse to receive our message are refusing God, Christ himself. And once again, we're confronted with the gravity of this mission. To put it in another way, the mission Christ has assigned us passes the so what test. We live in a world where people all around us wonder what it's all about. Why are they living this life? What are they supposed to be doing? What's their purpose? What are they to accomplish? So what's it all about? And you and I have a mission that defines what it's all about. It's all about His glory and our faithfulness while we spend our days on this earth. It's all about Jesus and the cross, and the empty tomb, and a life that's offered to you and me for eternity. An eighth observation about the mission Christ has called us to is that the nature of our mission is spiritual warfare. Look at verses 17 through 19. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him. They said, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven as a flash of lightning. What's all this talk about demons and about Satan? What's all that talk about? 
It is a reminder that the enemy that we face are not people. People are the ones for whom Jesus died. Your nasty neighbor is not the enemy. He's the mission field. People who hold a different political persuasion than you are not the enemy. They're the mission field. The enemy we know, the enemy is Satan, the enemy are his demons. Paul spoke of it in, in Ephesians when he said, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. That's not the enemy. The enemy is powers and principalities and dark things that go bump in the night. Now we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers. You say, that's scary stuff. I think I'll turn in my badge. I'm not up for that. Apostle Paul said something very similar. He said, who's adequate for all these things? But wait a minute. Jesus says, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will injure you. One final observation about our mission. The joy, this is what I'm going to leave with you this morning. The joy resulting from our mission will be unparalleled in this lifetime. Verse 17, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to the Lord, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Many years ago during the season of personal and ministry discouragement, I called home to Ohio to talk with my spiritual mentor, my dad. After several minutes of venting, I, I waited in silence to see what encouragement he might offer. And here's what he, he said to me. Well, he said, here's what you do. First, I take it you're sitting at your desk, right, buddy? I said, yeah. He said, close your books, leave your office, go out of your house and share the good news of the gospel with the first person who will listen to you. If that doesn't put the joy of the Lord back in your heart, I don't know what will. It was exactly what I needed to hear. Years later, when I was pastoring on the north shore of Chicago, I was leading a weekly small group. We'd been together for a couple years and had experienced some remarkable times in the Lord, but more recently, things had gone stale. And as I waited on the Lord as to what the group needed, I remembered my dad's counsel years earlier. So at the next meeting, I suggested a distinct change in our meeting format. Look, I said, Christmas is just a few weeks off. Let's throw a Levi party. You know what a Levi party is? Levi was the one who, when he came to Christ, he threw a party, invited all his unbelieving friends in and said, I want you to meet Jesus. I said, let's throw a Levi party. Let's all invite some unbelieving friend that we have to come to a banquet that we're going to prepare for them. We love to cook. We love to have good times together. Let's prepare an event, a Christmas event they'll never forget, a banquet the likes of which they've never sat at. And after we've done that, let's go into the living room, sit down around the fireplace, and let's invite them to share with us, and let's share with them what Christmas means to us. And so that's what we did. We had a full house. We had a fabulous meal. I know because I cooked part of it. Then we went into the family room. 
We gathered around the fireplace. We sang carols. We took turns telling one another what Christmas meant to us. Our neighbors shared stories about their favorite Christmas or the year Uncle Fred played Santa Claus and caught his beard on fire and, and the recipe from Grandma's a spiced eggnog and their favorite Christmas movies. And we shared too. Well, we shared lots of things. We shared all sorts of Christmassy things. But as you can imagine, our thoughts kept coming back to the baby, the little guy in the manger, and how how understanding why he was there in the first place had changed our lives. Nobody preached, but everybody told the truth about what Jesus meant to them. And the result? Well, to our surprise, there were a lot of rave reviews from the neighbors. Several families even started attending the church that following year. But for me, the real success of that evening was the joy on the faces of our group members as they shared what Jesus had come to mean to them. Some of them, I hadn't seen that kind of surprise and excitement and joy on their faces in years. The boredom, the ho-hum was gone, and in its place was the joy of making His name known. The 72 returned rejoicing. Time to, if Jay were here, time would, he would say what? Time to land the plane. Gabe was here last Sunday. He said, time to bring the ship into harbor. And I tried to think, what could I say to you this morning? And I'm going to try this out on you. Time to put the Quaker preacher back in his oatmeal box. (laughs) But there is a summons and it's this. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, do it. On the authority of God's word and the witness of his church and the fact that he is near and coming again, do it. Confess your sins. Repent. Turn to him. Those of you who find yourselves, Christians, a little bored, a little ho-hum about the things of Christ, get out of your easy chair, turn off the TV, or your cell phone, or whatever it is. Leave your house. Find somebody. Tell them what Jesus means to you. Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. Grant us a new insight into the wonder, the joy of the mission to which you've called us. Amen.